You're listening to TIP. Hey everyone, welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. Today, I have an exciting announcement for you all as I introduce the new host of Millennial Investing, Rebecca Hotsko. Rebecca, it's such a pleasure to have you a part of the team here at TIP. Thanks so much, Clay. I'm really excited to be here. To paint a bit of a picture for why we decided to make this change for the Millennial Investing Show, I think it's helpful to look back at how TIP originally started. Back in 2014, the founders of TIP, Preston Pish and Stig Broderson, started their first show called We Study Billionaires. They originally started by studying Warren Buffett and many of these other billionaires, such as Ray Dalio, Charlie Munger, Peter Thiel, Jeff Bezos, and a number of these other billionaires. They'd also cover some of their favorite books on the podcast as well and do book reviews. Then gradually over time, the show transitioned to primarily doing the guest interviews. For a while, Stig has wanted to go back to producing some of the original episodes they were doing that was more evergreen content, where it's just the host covering a topic. And he asked me if I'd be interested in doing that on We Study Billionaires, and it just felt like an opportunity I really couldn't pass up. The kicker was that I had to find a new host for the Millennial Investing Show because I wouldn't have the time to do both. And luckily enough, I was introduced to you, Rebecca, and thought you'd be just a great fit to be the new host of Millennial Investing. For those who don't know you yet, Rebecca, how about you tell the audience a little bit about your background and how you got to where you are today? Thanks, Clay. So my background is a bit of a mix. My educational background is in economics, as well as I've completed two levels of the CFA. I started off my corporate career working at the Bank of Canada, as well as in the energy industry and investment management. But I knew I didn't want to stay in the corporate world forever. So about two years ago now, I was presented with a business opportunity and I ended up starting my own business and co-founded a luxury boat sharing club in Canada, which is where I live. And I've been doing that ever since. And in my spare time, I also like writing about investment topics on my blog and my personal investing strategy. And what I like to write about is largely based on empirical science. So I'm interested in bringing a bit more content around that onto the show in the future as well. Well, I know you'll do a really great job. You have a number of fantastic guests queued up for the audience, including today's guest, actually. Nothing on the show in particular will change besides having a new host. We'll still be doing the two guest interviews for Millennial Investing on Tuesdays and Thursdays, and we'll have the mini episodes on Saturdays. Robert will also host the Millennial Investing Show from time to time still, but for the most part, you can find him on the Real Estate 101 show that is released on Mondays. So if you'd like to stay in touch with me and follow along with what I'm working on, you'll be able to find me on the We Study Billionaires channel here in the coming weeks. All right, without further ado, let's dive into the intro. On today's episode, I'm joined by Eddie Donmez, who is the lead content creator and global markets analyst at Finimize. Finimize is an information platform with over 1 million members that provides investors with the latest in financial and investing news. During this episode, Clay and I chat with Eddie about how he got recruited by a leading financial information platform in the UK, how to grow a following on social media, his top tips on how to land a job in finance, what macro data and trends are the most important for investors to pay attention to, why he thinks inflation may be here to stay for longer, his outlook on global markets, and so much more. I've been following Eddie on social media for a while now and really enjoy his insights on the latest financial news, the global economy, and overall markets. With that, I really hope you enjoy today's conversation with Eddie Donmez as much as I did. You're listening to Millennial Investing by the Investors Podcast Network, where your hosts, Robert Leonard and Rebecca Hotsko, interview successful entrepreneurs, business leaders, and investors to help educate and inspire the millennial generation. Welcome to the Millennial Investing Podcast. I'm your host, Rebecca Hotsko, as well as I'm here with my co-host, Clay Fink. And today we are joined by Eddie Donmez. Eddie, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Rebecca. Eddie, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today all the way from the UK. I'd like to kick things off today by talking a bit about your background and how you became a director at the age of only 26. 
Yeah, so it's definitely a, a windy one, I would say. So I think if we start all the way at the beginning, so I've always had a passion for teaching, I would say. Uh, my mum always told me you would have been a good teacher, but I definitely didn't pursue that path for, I think, pretty obvious reasons. But yeah, I think I was really focused on sport, I would say, when I was younger. I was a keen swimmer, a keen basketball player. I think that did quite cliche, uh, give me a lot of good skills that would prepare me for my later years, just in terms of the communication and determination and things like that. And during school, I really loved uh, economics, really enjoyed the kind of analytical elements of it, looking at different countries and economies and assessing the impacts of certain policies. Um, it all made real crystal clear sense to me. I think the one thing it lacked was, was financial market. So when I went on to university i studied economics given my kind of love for it but i think i came away extremely frustrated as many people do with academia and the way it was taught mainly so i just felt that there was a real lack of real world practical application embedded in the theory so what was happening on the news and with markets was completely different to what was being taught during my degree. Like I knew how to derive a Lagrangian function and an optimization function, but I didn't know how an OPEC conference would move the price of oil. I didn't know where the S&P 500 was trading at. So it kind of didn't became a little bit disillusioned with that whole kind of academic process and the way it was kind of being delivered. So I was getting less and less interested as the years kind of went on. And it basically, as if you've studied economics, it's basically a glorified math degree. So I didn't know how to read income statement. I didn't know what banking was. I didn't know really anything that would help me in that interview process when I was trying to break into investment banking or asset management. You study economics, I think, because you're, it sounds good and people say, oh, this is a great degree to study and people get good jobs after it. But the reality is you have to do a lot of work uh, on the side. And unless you get that guidance, it can be quite, quite difficult. So I have to say, I didn't have a dream of uh, working in finance, but I did take a few kind of derivatives classes and corporate finance modules. And I knew that this was much more interesting than the economic side of it for me, because it was real. I mean, looking at real world income statements and balance sheets and cash flows you could really see okay this is the you know walmart's earnings this is nike's earnings this is apple's earnings and it kind of just became a lot more real for me so overall i think i did have a bit of a bad taste coming out of academia and i knew something had to change and that's really what led me to kind of transition into financial education technology and now finamize you mentioned you've recently transitioned to a role of Phenomize. You're a lead content creator and global markets analyst for them. Talk about what led to that transition and maybe what the day-to-day -day looks like now. Yeah. So uh, when I was with the financial education technology company, I really found my passion was writing and writing in public. So it originally started with me posting my kind of market commentary and analysis on, on LinkedIn, which is a kind of untraditional social media, I would say, for if you compare it to Fintuit or something like that. But what I kind of found with LinkedIn is you've got exactly who you want to be writing to. Um, you've got lots of people that are in the financial market space, lots of portfolio managers and analysts and people, and you can see directly who they are, right? And who the decision makers are in the firm. And after a few kind of weeks and months of posting on social media, I started to get uh, a bit of traction. And I used to get portfolio managers and analysts message me saying, hey, I love your work on this. Oh, I love that your analysis on that. You know, can you tell me a little bit more about this? Um, so it really gave me a bit of kind of confidence. And I, I would say I was, I've been pretty infrequent over the years, but really took it seriously uh, at the start of this year, kind of around Christmas time, um, starting to post more kind of frequently and get my kind of market commentary out and share really useful resources if it's investment research or kind of interview guides and things like that, anything to add value to my audience. And the more I started posting valuable stuff, the more kind of messages and nice messages I got. And it really kind of gave me, you know, confidence in, yeah, you really have a talent for this. So you should keep doing more and more of it. So my kind of transition in, into Finimize, they kind of saw that I was very good at talking to millennials and Gen Z and writing about financial markets in a an accessible way. And I think when uh, now I work at Finamize, 
the synergies are, are very, very clear. So Finamize really tries to be the number one information platform for modern investors. So not not students, but retail investors, really over the age of 25 all the way to, to 45. So they have got an audience of about a million users, which allowed me to get my research out to more and more people, which was super kind of important. But it's really about empowering the modern investor. A modern investor is not really a term that you hear too much. It's more of a kind of new phrase and a new terminology for retail investor. So the way we kind of classify modern investors really uh, at Finimize is kind of time poor, right? You have 20 minutes on the train or the bus to read some research. Chances are you're invested. So you probably have a great job you have money, surplus income coming in. You don't have time to sit at your Bloomberg terminal for six hours a day because you have a job in banking or consulting or whatever it is. But you want to stay in tune with the markets and really consume institutional grade research. So we have a great team of in-house analysts, super talented, all of ex you know, Goldman Sachs and portfolio managers. So we, along with me, produce multiple research pieces every day that's kind of of institutional grade quality, but in a bite-sized way. So there's a common misconception, I think, that quality research means volume, right? The more research there is, there's lots of pages, the higher quality it is. But actually, quality and is and premium is actually bite-sized, right? And that's where the synergies between myself and Finamize really work quite nicely is when I post on LinkedIn, I try and make it as short as possible to get my point across because I'm sure uh, you guys have realized that the smartest people tend to get their opinions across in the fewest number of words. People don't want lots of words and lots of time to consume this information. They want, you know, tell me what your, your point is, give me the stats, and then I'll draw my own recommendation uh, from it. So more research and more words doesn't mean it's better. And that ties quite nicely into education, right? You're kind of conditioned socially to go, okay, you need to write an 1,000-word essay or a 5,000-word dissertation, when really in the real world, you've got two seconds to get your point across. Otherwise, it's like, okay, I'm moving on, particularly with the more kind of senior members of your team or, or your company. So bite-sized research is what we do at Finamize. And what we really kind of understand is our community. So the way people consume their research and make investment decisions is not through the traditional methods of Bloomberg, institutional research, FT all the time. Actually, what we find from our community is they will discuss with their community before taking an investment decision. They want to hear it from top analysts, but in a bite-sized way. Okay, So there's kind of a change, I would say, with Gen Z and millennial investors and modern investors and the way they consume content and then make investment decisions. And they're consuming their content through podcasts, YouTube, TikTok, all the trends that we see, not necessarily through the traditional institutional grade research kind of avenues. It's interesting because that's actually how I found you was on LinkedIn. I kept seeing your posts being shared by others. And so ever since then, I've been reading your content on LinkedIn and I always find it super insightful. And like you said, just very concise and to the point. So that's where I get a lot of my morning news from. And so you've been able to create quite a large following for yourself on LinkedIn, as well as get recruited by a very large financial firm in the UK, as you mentioned. So I'm wondering if you have any tips you could share for anyone who's maybe wanting to jump into this space and grow their own following. Yeah, absolutely. So of course, it depends on which channel that you want to go ahead and start creating content on, really find which platform works for you, um, and then get really good at it. Start kind of writing and, and trying different avenues of, of content and the way you kind of frame things and different graphics and different kind of ways of communicating. But I have a framework that I use that perhaps some of your audience will kind of draw some inspiration from it might not work for other people but it works for me so i've got a got three points that i tend to kind of live by so be first um i think my strategy i would say uh, on linkedin is almost an, a bit of an arbitrage strategy to put it into the financial concept um so 
obviously Twitter and other kind of platforms are much more kind of second by second, whereas LinkedIn traditionally has been quite kind of slower company announcement. You know, uh, I'm delighted to be joining X company when really there's no kind of reason why the news on LinkedIn can't be instantaneous. So I try to be first on the breaking news stories because seconds make the difference. And I always try and stay fluid and flexible in the sense of I don't try to pretend to be an expert on everything because that's impossible. Not even the top portfolio manager can be an expert in everything. But once you kind of find a really interesting story or an interesting company or anything you want to do some analysis on, you can do some research and come up with your own kind of analysis and recommendation at, at the end of it. So it's all about staying fluid and flexible because the beautiful thing about financial markets is something that's driving financial markets yesterday or the month before that or the year before that is gone. And every day there's a new story. So in today's news, it's UK inflation printing a double digit kind of uh, percentage much higher than expected and that sent two-year yields flying and city strategists upgrading their forecast for next year to 15%. That's completely different to the market narrative that was yesterday. There's always new breaking stories that are happening and you don't need to be an expert on all of them. You just need to know enough to you know, take that data point and actually put your own spin and take on it through your own experience. Another thing that I like to kind of employ is being emotive right? Inflation's boring. You know, economic data points are generally quite boring if it's housing starts or sales or GDP. So what I try and do is relate it to the modern investor, the average person, because at the end of the day, that's who my audience are. And that's who the, the majority of people are. They don't really know what a negative print on GDP or a recession really means for them. So you need to show them. So it has to create an emotional response that makes it relatable to them. So yes, inflation may be boring, right? It comes out, you kind of hear that it's high, but your bills going up isn't. And the fact that maybe we're going to freeze in Europe because Russian gas supplies are going to stop flowing to the continent, that then becomes about the average person because everyone has bills, everyone you know is actually then vulnerable to inflation. But the kind of traditional financial media of GDP or an inflation print coming out is not that attainable and approachable for the average person. And then the other kind of key point for me is be consistent. Okay, Don't just put nonsense out just because you haven't had a post today. Be consistent with reliable quality. And over time, that builds up a lot of trust, um, I would say, between your audience. What is very common for content creators, and like myself, I've, I've done this, is go, oh, I'm going to put a bit of content out. It doesn't get a good reaction, you know, it gets zero likes or zero interactions. No one really cares about it. And then you stop and then you don't post for uh, six months or and then you come back to it and go, oh, I haven't posted on Twitter, you know, in a, in a few months. This time will be different. And then I post again and you don't get any interactions. And then you give it another three months and then you do it again. And that kind of lack of consistency or inconsistency doesn't allow your audience, if you have the sufficient quality to communicate your views, for them to actually build trust with you over time. So now, as you probably kind of mentioned, I'm known for putting out very timely breaking news financial analysis frequently on a daily basis. But if I only put out one every year, then it's going to be difficult for people to associate me with that. So it's about building kind of uh, a really uh, an audience that trusts you to deliver quality analysis kind of frequently. Let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors. Hey guys, about a year and a half ago, my wife and I got married and one of the most stressful parts of our relationship has been trying to join our finances together. We all know that money issues are a leading cause of divorce, but Monarch, the top rated personal finance app, has built in collaboration features so that you can invite your partner at no extra cost. Together, you can see all your finances, collaborate on your budget and get insights on your cash flow and recurring transactions. It's the easiest way to manage your household finances. Unlike other personal finance apps that we tried, Monarch's simple, intuitive design makes it so easy to set up, customize, and use. Monarch is obsessed with constantly improving the product, and they release updates every two weeks and allow customers to submit suggestions, vote on requested features, and view the product roadmap. Most importantly, they never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, my wife and I understand why it's a top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners on this show will get an extended 30-day free trial 
when you go to monarchmoney.com slash MI. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y.com slash MI for your extended 30-day free trial. Go to monarchmoney.com slash MI for an extended 30-day free trial. Hey guys, have you ever wondered if there's an AI tool like ChatGPT specifically built for the stock market? A tool that not only does the research and analysis for you, but also allows for dynamic discussions? Well, wonder no more. Meet Meka, your AI-powered stock research assistant, now enhanced with real-time stock data. Let Meka do the heavy lifting for you to significantly reduce your research time. And the best part, Meka is 100% free. Ask Meka questions like, explore the financial health of Apple through a summary of its balance sheet. Compare the financial statements of Apple and Tesla. What is the analyst price target for Microsoft? What is the social sentiment analysis of Amazon and millions of other queries right at your fingertips? Visit Meka.com. That's M-E-Y-K-A.com. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet. But I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. All right, back to the show. I'm really glad you mentioned the consistency piece. I definitely think that is something that's just so important when it comes to creating content. For me, myself, I was just a huge fan of the Investors Podcast Network for many years. And, you know, Preston and Stig, I knew I could rely on them to produce those quality episodes every single week and they would literally never miss a week. So I knew, like you mentioned, it builds that trust between you and the audience. And I wanted to ask you specifically about getting into the world of finance. I recently interviewed Eliana Goldstein on our show. That was MI205, Millennial Investing Episode 205. My conversation with her really had me reflecting on my own career path. I was working in insurance, so not technically in finance, but it's you know somewhat related in a way. And I think a lot of people, when they go down a career path, they almost feel like stuck, whether it's the time they've invested in that specific career or all the money they've invested through college. You know, for someone that's younger or maybe someone that one is looking to switch careers and get into finance, are there any tips you have for someone that wants to do that? Yeah, so I would say that there's a quite a large difference between entry level finance, as you kind of correctly mentioned, breaking in that way, versus someone who's been in a traditional kind of insurance role or a financial role, or maybe working within a bank in the back office or, or anything like that. I think as you kind of get older and you know uh, more into your career, it becomes a bit more difficult to transition, right? Like. If you think about the decision maker's perspective, um, as in my previous company, I used to work a huge amount with the re- recruitment teams at Bulge Bracket Investment Banks and hedge funds. And of course, they're always going to be looking at fresh grads out of college that have a mind that can be shaped, right? And and in their early career, don't have any kind of biases or or kind of prior experiences. When you kind of transition in your career, it becomes harder. That's just the reality of it but it's never impossible. Uh, And I've come across so many kind of examples um, in my previous job and in my current job now, even in the early days, where people are transitioning from different roles within finance to investment banking and kind of uh, hedge funds and more where they, let's say, want to be. But I think what becomes of increasing importance in that kind of capacity is networking and putting yourself out there to be visible. So that kind of ties quite nicely into posting and writing online. So you guys are content creators as well. You put yourself out there on a weekly basis for crit- you know, criticism and you know comments and things like that. 
I think you need to kind of leave that behind. Um, when you put right in public or you do TikToks or you do YouTube videos, it's quite a, a vulnerable kind of position to put yourself in. But one thing it does give you is kind of the the ability to be noticed outside of your network. And if you are a consistent kind of creator or a writer of blogs, you know, let's say on the traditional kind of um, investing kind of blog websites, or you, you go on podcasts and things like that, it allows people to see your skills and the way you come across in a much like easier way, I would say, than you know the traditional kind of application process. Because it's really hard to communicate how good you are or your skills when you submit a CV. So I'd say any advice for, for people that are you know a few years into their career and looking to break into an investment bank or a hedge fund is it's never impossible. Never give up. There's always a chance that you can do that, but you need to have a game plan. Okay, where do I want to work? What do I want to do? What are the prerequisites for someone that wants to work in quantitative finance or algo trading or investment banking? Is there any kind of mid-career kind of programs that are available if it's like a vet program, for example, that would allow me as a kind of seasoned kind of worker to transition into the bank and then start writing and putting yourself out there in public so you can showcase your skills. If you have the sufficient quality, people will notice, particularly on LinkedIn, I see people that don't come from you know, traditional investment banking pathways, just like I didn't. I work for S&P, the world's largest credit rating agency, but I didn't work for an investment bank. I didn't work as an investment analyst, um, yet portfolio managers and, you know, people like that comment on on my analytical skills. So it just, you know, shows you that if you've got the skills and you do the work, then you're able to kind of achieve anything, but you need to have a game plan kind of going into it. I can definitely relate to the struggles of trying to switch careers into finance from an unrelated field. I had a complete econ background starting out and didn't have any formal finance education until I started doing my CFA, but I always knew I wanted to get into private equity or investment banking, but it was just extremely hard and I kind of felt like what you mentioned, it was hard to transition when I had already started a career in a different field. And I also found it hard to find the practical training that would not only help me get the job, but succeed in the job if I got it. So given your experience at your previous job where you provided financial market training to students as well as at hedge funds, large asset managers and financial institutions, I'm curious to know what you think are the most useful designations and education that can help young professionals not only get these jobs, but really succeed in them when they get them. Yeah, I think my big mantra, I would say, is the best way of learning is to learn by doing it, right? There's no substitute for that. Um, you can get the smartest people from Harvard, Stanford, Oxford, Cambridge, studying economics and management. And if you sit them down or, you know, in front of a, a trading screen or um, you put them in a, an investment banking job, they're not guaranteed to succeed. So I think that the recruitment kind of process is changing and it will continue to evolve, um, but there's no substitute for practical experience. So let me put it this way. If you're looking for a trading job or a portfolio management job or as an investment analyst on the buy side, there's no substitute for going, taking a company, valuing it, you know, running your discounted cash flow and LBO analysis, your comps, whatever it is, putting together a, an investment thesis and, and a report and then taking that to an interview. So when they ask you, pitch me a stock or pitch me multiple stocks or what do you think about Amazon or Apple, you've not only just got a basic high level understanding of oh yeah, Amazon's pretty good because it delivers parcels and it also has Amazon web services that I think generate decent margins. You actually have a full investment thesis, the story behind the stock, different kind of valuation methodologies. And if you take that and have a you know a decent analysis, then that's always going to stand up to a VP or an MD who's interviewing you to say, okay, this guy or this girl's actually done the work because it's, it's so obvious for the people that have done the work and, and those that, who haven't. So I'd say there's no substitute for practical application. So if you want to go for a trading role, open a trading account, start trading, start investing, reflect on your trades, your psychology, why you made this decision, 
at what valuation was it a correct entry or exit you know and start reflecting that way if you want to go into investment banking start putting together your own pitch books and uh, valuations of different companies and you know real kind of real world experiences i would say that having done cfa and kind of professional qualifications it's quite tempting i would say to keep piling on academic qualifications to try and be more attractive in the job market i think the worst thing about today is that 30 years ago if you went up to a bank maybe didn't even go to college you could probably get a job if you had you know if you could talk the talk nowadays unfortunately the job market particularly in that kind of entry space is so saturated with master students phd students those with even experience are all fighting for those really lucrative jobs so there's always a temptation to go oh i'm going to make myself more attractive and do and pay fifty thousand dollars for a new master's program from a non you know no name university i would kind of bet against that um because that okay does put you i guess a bit more educated but I'd much rather, if I was interviewing someone, and I have run many interviews, much rather see someone that's actually gone and valued a company or got some work experience, um, even unpaid, so, because there's no substitute for that kind of practical experience, I would say. So things like CFA and IMC and um, all those other qualifications are great because it shows that, one, you've worked really, really hard. So when I did CFA level one when I was studying uh, working at S&P, I wouldn't necessarily say it was the most, the, you know, the hardest thing I've ever done, but it definitely, definitely required the most amount of hours to be put in. It's, you know, an inch deep and a mile wide. You need to know a little bit about everything. And I think having been through that experience, whenever I would interview someone who had that experience, I know the blood, sweat and tears that they've put into that qualification. So to me, regardless of if they've passed it or, or not, they've shown resilience to actually go through that, particularly if they're juggling other, other commitments, I would say. So if I've got two candidates that are exactly the same academically and you know, uh, in front of me, they're speaking the same language, financially speaking, um, and one has a CFA, of course, I'm going to you know, go for that uh, individual. So it does carry some weight. And it also means that when I hire this person, I don't have to babysit them as much as I, I would have because they do have a decent level of knowledge having passed uh, something like CFA. So, you know, in summary, I would say that it's great if you've got the time, but there's no substitute for work experience and actually learning by doing and getting those experiences because when you get into that interview even if you've done cfa level one doesn't teach you how to pitch a stock so you better know and rehearse that kind of stock pitch or, or any other kind of interview technicals to really kind of resonate with the the vp or md that's interviewing you so switching gears a bit here i want to talk to you about some of your views on what's happening in the global financial markets so you post a lot of macro content and share insights into the latest economic news on your LinkedIn. And I'm just wondering, do you generally follow a more macro-based investment strategy or how would you describe your investment strategy? Yeah, so I think my investment strategy definitely has a, a macro bias. I always take the view of you can build the best financial model, you know, 100 tabs with, you know, the, the utmost precision. But if you don't take into account the macro, the political, the geopolitical, then you're dead, right? If you look at, let's just take China as an example, those, some of those kind of Chinese tech stocks like Alibaba, for example, are absolute money machines, great fundamentals. And many investors have invested in these types of stocks because of these you know, super strong fundamentals. But if you ignore the macro, the geopolitical, and let's say Xi Jinping kind of clamping down on tech stocks, then you can be almost wiped out with Alibaba down 50%, right? Just because you didn't pay attention to the macro and the politics behind it. So I would say that, of course, I focus on key macro indicators, which of course at the moment has been inflation and hawkish central banks. So CPI obviously slowing, decelerating, month on month, which has kind of led to this kind of equity market rally, the interest rate kind of policies from the Fed, central bank speakers, they're of the utmost importance at the moment. But again, 
this type of thing gyrates in the sense of what is of the utmost importance to financial markets. So I'm always watching all the macro indicators, but if I want to invest in a single stock, I would say that I do have a kind of bottom bottom up approach where I do value the company and, and run my own analysis. But you always have to give a weight, I think, to the macro uh, environment. You mentioned inflation and kind of where inflation's been trending recently. Is there any other data or you know macro indicators that you're looking at to help in your analysis? Yeah, so inflation at the moment is going to be you know of the utmost importance. It seems like it's decelerating in the US. In UK, we just had a, a double digit inflation print in the eurozone. It's extremely hot again. So inflation is going to dominate the narrative for the foreseeable future. But one thing that I'm watching at the moment is the macro data, of course. So things like housing, consumer credit, the, the strength of the consumer are all becoming extremely important when we think about how the inflation picture and the recessionary fears are shifting the central bank's kind of reaction function. So at the moment, I would say that financial conditions have eased and really were stuck in the sense of a market narrative between inflation and recessionary fears. So I'm really paying close attention to housing, which is usually the first indicator of a slowdown. I'm really focusing on consumer spending, which apparently is quite strong at the moment. But when I look at consumer credit card data and, and data points like that, it seems like the consumer is leveraging up to kind of basically uh, fight off the cost of living increases with credit rather than actually being a healthy, strong consumer. So I'm really watching consumer sentiment, consumer spending, and the manufacturing picture as well, which is going to come under a huge amount of pressure given the margin erosion we're, we're likely to see over the coming months. So some investors who follow more of a bottom-up approach may not be looking at all of these economic and macro data points as much as those that use a top-down strategy. However, regardless of investment approach, I still think it's important for investors to understand the relationship between economic data and stock prices. And I guess because economic data is backwards looking and is often released with significant time lags, while the stock market is a forward pricing machine, why should investors care about what happens in economic data given that it is backwards looking? Yeah, so I think the perfect analogy for this is looking ahead now uh, at Q4 earnings for the S&P 500 and, and US equities, for example. So with the inflation picture decelerating, I would say, but likely to remain sticky and high. So the most important stat, I think, at the moment is, you know, inflation 8.5%. If it slows to 0% month on month until the end of the year, inflation's still going to be at 6.3%. And we're seeing the very sticky components of food, for example, uh, and some uh, other elements like shelter really actually accelerating and remaining high. So this has a big impact on earnings, right? I think the markets breathed a, a sense of relief when we went through Q2 earnings season, because I think people were planning and analysts were planning for the worst, lots of fears about this is going to be terrible. And it wasn't amazing, but it wasn't terrible. And I think that's really what saw equity investors through that period. With that being said, you know, looking out into Q3 and Q4 earnings, there's likely to be a lot of earnings deterioration, in my opinion, kind of amid this kind of rotation in consumer spending. We've obviously got the Federal Reserve. Um, will they pivot? Will they not? In my opinion, they won't. And they're going to have to tame inflation despite it decelerating. And because employment, for example, unemployment is low, employment is very, very strong and the labor market strong. So I think there's no reason for the Federal Reserve, as an example, to, to take the foot off the gas. Inflation is still 6.5% above their target. Um, so they need to get that down closer to that 2% mark, which is going to prove a challenge. Um, and all these kind of inflationary pressures, just talking about inflation, do feed through to the, the bottom line of, of companies. So when you're looking at energy costs, materials, 
manufacturing, all of these kind of um, components show up in the, in the cost line item, right? Inflation shows up in that cost line item and erodes margins. So when we kind of see um, companies report their earnings in the kind of con uh, subsequent quarters, I think we're going to see a lot of margin pressure. And then looking at where valuations are trading at the moment, around 19 times earnings for the S&P 500, that's not cheap, right, uh, according to historical standards, despite the kind of drawdown we've seen this year. So earnings then start to matter, and then the valuations start to matter. And then that's why investors should be kind of looking at the macro picture and how that interacts with Kind of company fundamentals because they're all interlinked and you have to stay wary of where there's going to be some pressures because as we've kind of seen with some big big misses this year from on, on earnings um just even looking at let's say your netflixes and things like that inflation impacting the number of subscriptions people want if you look at the walmarts and the targets the fact that the people's consumption patterns have changed since covid they've ordered the wrong stuff in inventories bloated they now have to discount these kind of inventory stockpiles that puts further pressure on, on earnings they report you know lower earnings and then they drop 30 percent when their earnings come out so that's why it's really really important to be watching all of these indicators if you can even if you're a fundamental bottom-up analyst let's take a quick break and hear from today's sponsors hey everyone it's patrick your host of millennial investing Every year, my buddies and I do a guy's trip to escape the cold and dreary Ohio winters. Once we pick our destination, without fail, we all jump on Airbnb and find an incredible place to stay. We just got back from an amazing trip in Palm Springs, California, and our Airbnb home was a huge part of creating memories we'll never forget. I loved it so much, I'm taking my family back to Palm Springs for spring break, and we're staying in an Airbnb home my kids fell in love with and picked out themselves. While I was there, I had the realization that my own home could be an Airbnb. It's an excellent way to earn some extra cash, whether you're saving up for your next vacation, paying off some bills, or investing. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. That's airbnb.com slash host. Hey guys, when it comes to financial advice, you've got to trust the source. It's why you listen to this podcast. When I'm looking to upgrade my wallet, I turn to NerdWallet. Their expert team of nerds dives into the details to help you find smarter financial products. Before NerdWallet, I'd pay for vacations with whatever credit card was in my wallet, but I was missing out on miles I didn't even know I was leaving on the table. Now I've got a new card with more miles and more upgrades. What could future you do with more travel rewards? A hotel upgrade? Lounge access? A free flight to a bucket list destination? Wherever you go next, make it happen with a smarter travel credit card. Don't wait to make smart financial decisions. Compare and find smarter credit cards, savings accounts, and much more today at nerdwallet.com. NerdWallet, finance smarter. Check out nerdwallet.com and start making smarter financial decisions. As with all cards, credit is subject to lender approval and terms apply. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. So to reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessed from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Everything seems to be more expensive these days. I've noticed this at my own businesses that I've run. You'd be wise to find proven ways to cut costs and boost performance at the same time. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash mi. netsuite.com slash mi. That's netsuite.com slash mi. All right, back to the show. A lot of investors might be listening to this and seeing all the inflation headlines and kind of get spooked and kind of 
maybe sit on the sidelines, maybe sell their positions, which could be a big mistake for some, just depends how things end up playing out. Are there any common mistakes you're seeing when it comes to you know, the economic data, whether it's inflation or any of the other headlines we're seeing? What are some of the common mistakes you see with investors? Yeah. So at the moment, I think retail and the modern investor is still very keen to buy the dip. I think when we saw that big drawdown, you would have thought that if you know these new investors coming into the market, they've only seen good times over since the COVID crash and then the subsequent rally. And then 2021 was a fantastic year for investors that they would be a bit disheartened by a 20-30% drawdown that they've never seen before. But actually, the mindset and the sentiment was completely different. It was, when can I buy the dip? When can I buy the dip? When can I buy the dip? And now the dips come, people have bought the dip. And I think now times are good again. Um, and there's a lot of risks out there currently. And I don't want to sound like a uh, perma bear, but there's so many risks that investors should be watching right now that really is you know, quite dangerous for short-term traders. As we know, over the longer term and depending on your time horizon, stocks will most likely continue to go up if you zoom out. So one of the biggest mistakes if you're a longer-term buy-and-hold investor is not buying any dips, I would say. But if you're a shorter-term trader, now looking at this uh, equity market rally, to be honest, is being driven by lower real yields and a kind of misinterpreted uh, Federal Reserve and potentially a misleading inflation data point in the sense of one data point doesn't make a trend and we're yet to see the other data points flow through. And now you're kind of betting your house that you know, times are good again, inflation's going to come down, we're going to get a soft landing, you know, life's good, not taking into account the worsening economic picture. Because what we've seen very recently is, you know, economic data slowing down. And I'm talking about some of the indicators that I referred to before, looking at manufacturing and housing. Um, and these higher rates are playing havoc with things like mortgage payments and housing demand and housing starts when you're looking at kind of construction and the higher price of things, you know, preventing house builders from building houses. And then you saw the data out of China very uh, this week, I believe, that basically zero COVID, weakening demand, um, obviously the China-Taiwan situation, the real estate crash that's going going on with house sales down about 30%. Then you've got Europe with extremely high energy prices that's playing havoc with small businesses, large businesses, there's you know, rivers that are running dry, um, energy prices are up 400, 500%. So there's a lot of risks out there on the horizon. So kind of going in blindly and saying, look, markets are up, we're going to get a soft landing and a Fed pivot um, is probably not the right strategy. I would say that in my kind of years of being in the market, this is probably the most confusing market I've ever been in, in the sense of there's so many conflicting views from top strategists that are on completely other ends of, of the spectrum. So making an investment decision at the moment is quite difficult because depending on whoever you listen to, they're saying something com completely different. So I would say if you're a longer term investor, dips are, are there to be bought. That dip's now been erased with the S&P up 17% off the bottom. But now not taking into account some of the economic data points at the moment is would be a mistake, in my opinion. So we're in kind of a strange place right now where bad economic data is actually positive for the market, such as if a country's growth outlook declines, because then the market is kind of viewing that as a positive in the context of the Fed might stop to stop raising rates as much. So... Can you explain to our listeners what type of economic data would be positive for the markets going forward? Because you mentioned that these are just one data point and then you're not really convinced that things are going to get better. So in your view, what would be positive data? Yeah, I would say that it's all about inflation and that deceleration. So I would say that if we see flat 0% month on month inflation for the kind of uh, remaining months of the year and into 2023, or even negative inflation prints, that's going to be a really positive sign for investors. I would say that it really depends on which geographical region that you're looking at. So 
with the US, it's definitely that decelerating inflation print. With Europe and the UK, you really want to watch the health of consumers, um, credit, credit spreads uh, of companies, and kind of more specific data points like that. You mentioned the UK specifically, and you're looking at some of the data in the UK, but you're also mindful that the US and the Federal Reserve in the US is going to have a huge impact on the global macro markets. How does the UK fit into your investment approach as someone who resides in the UK yourself? Yeah. So I think it's always important to realize that the Federal Reserve as a central bank more often than not leads all other central banks all over over the world. So it's absolutely essential to watch them because they tend, the ECB and the, the BOE, the Bank of England, tend to follow their path with somewhat of a lack. So it's been really important to watch how Jerome Powell and the Federal Reserve have dealt with the inflation situation. Arguably, they've done a much better job than the Bank of England and the European Central Bank going somewhat late, very, very kind of, it's very apparent that they were behind the curve, but they haven't been as much behind the curve as the ECB and the Bank of England, who have only just started raising rates. Now they've got a real mess on their hands where they've got a much greater deteriorating economic climate with now accelerating inflation. Whereas in the US, it's a different story where, yes, we're getting weakness in the economy, but unemployment is still low, the labor market's still tight, but inflation now appears to be decelerating. So that's the kind of key difference between the two central banks. So when I look at the Bank of England, for example, now they've got a real mess on their hands where they're going to have to hike aggressively into a slowing economy heading into the winter where we're going to get energy bills going from £1,900 to £5,000. And you hear anecdotal stories of those in Europe, small businesses and things like that, that are seeing their energy prices 10x. Okay, so that's going to be a real mess for both the governments and the, the central banks of the UK and Europe to really deal with at the moment. So for us investors who are trying to still earn a return over the next few years, even though there's kind of a bleak investment environment right now, I'm wondering if there are any markets that you are bullish on right now, and if you could speak to some of the major themes you're watching in those. Yeah. So I would say that uh, despite the recent kind of pullback, I would say that the, the commodity story is very attractive, kind of longer term. I think now provides a decent opportunity to get back involved in the kind of in that space, given the kind of demand supply dynamics. We the other kind of contrast to that is that now as we head into 2023, we are gonna get more and more headlines and data points that point to a recession and a global slowdown. Right. So even if you're looking at China slowing down, Europe and the UK are definitely heading into a recession. It's obviously somewhat undecided whether the US is heading into a recession or if it's being termed as a recession. Yeah. So I would say geographically speaking, I prefer the US over Europe and China and the UK as an example. So I, I do have a, a bias towards the US that I think we are getting some kind of weakening economic data points, um, but with inflation decelerating, I feel that the US is best placed, you know, relatively speaking. I would have a bias towards defensive plays. So heading into this slowing economic environment, healthcare, consumer staples, energy, despite the recent pullback in, in commodities and energy markets, I think the market there is going to be driven by supply dynamics, which I don't think have actually worked themselves out too much. So I think the longer term commodity story is definitely there. So you always want to look at, particularly over the last kind of couple of years, which asset classes and which kind of sectors, let's say, do well in inflationary environment. And that tends to be real assets. Equities, depending on the sector, can provide somewhat of a, a hedge. However, equities on average, citing a, a man group kind of research paper, generally do not perform well in high inflation environments. In the US, we now have potentially a decelerating US inflation picture. So I still want to be involved in those that have inflation protection 
I would say, or at work as a little bit of a hedge because it depends on how fast this inflation comes down, I would say, and where it settles to. So the big risk to financial markets is that it either doesn't come down as fast as possible or it remains extremely sticky into 2023. That would be a disaster scenario for the economy and, and, and equity markets. So I'm underweight, I would say stocks, but have a defensive tilt to healthcare consumer staples. Off the kind of June bottom, we've seen consumer discretionary technology stocks really outperform growth at outperform value. I don't think that trend is going to last, um, particularly with the, let's say, weakening economic data picture flowing through to consumer spending. I think we're going to see a pullback again in discretionary spending. So I still want to be involved in the equity markets, but I'm picking my battles you know, quite carefully and keeping extremely vigilant of the risks on the horizon. So you know, some even red herrings like um, China, Taiwan potentially, you know, could kind of exacerbate geopolitical tensions at any point. So watching that story, that of course could flow through into semiconductors, which could then flow through into some of the tech names like Apple and Samsung as an example. So there's a lot of risks out there. So I'm staying vigilant and looking at those real quality companies that have low interest kind of payments high interest coverage ratios, good earnings, a good track record of earnings. Um, and I think, yeah, the market's really going to value those with high earnings going into Q3 and Q4. Since you're based in the UK, I had a question for you, more for the buy and hold type investor. On the one hand, a lot of people have home country bias in that they'll only invest in the country that they're in. But on the other hand, You've mentioned that inflation has been really hot in the UK, You know, higher inflation in the UK than in the US. And the US in particular has been you know, one of the top performing markets for the past many years. Part of that's just due to being kind of a global superpower and having the Federal Reserve on their side and being the global reserve currency. How should international investors think about you know, having a buy and hold approach? You know, should they put some portion of their money in the US or a lot of it in the US or should they stick to their home country? Because some of our listeners are located outside the US. So I'm curious what your take is on this. Yeah, I would say talking about different time horizons, I would say I've mentioned that I'm kind of relatively biased towards the US given where we are kind of economically. I would say that there's some attractive opportunities in emerging markets, but with a stronger dollar, um, that we've seen this year, that's been a, a, a terrible, terrible pick. But there will be some opportunities if the dollar, for example, rolls over. Um, when you're an international investor, of course, investing in, in the US, you also need to take into account the FX kind of effects of your purchase. So pound to a euro to a dollar uh, with the dollar at all time highs, you need to make that adjustment on your return. So there's a few things to consider. I would say investing kind of globally uh, as well. Um, given what we've seen uh, with Russia, Ukraine, now China, Taiwan, there's a lot of uncertainty globally, especially with China, uh, let's say Europe, slowing down in the near term. So I'd be slightly wary of um, investing outside the US actually at, at this time, but that's just my view. I'm so happy that you mentioned that currency aspect because I'm actually based in Canada and I would say majority of my investments are in the US. And it's so important for investors that are investing outside of their domestic country to remember that you are long whatever currency your investment is based in. So if one of my US stocks goes up by 10%, but over the same time period, the US dollar depreciates 10% relative to the Canadian dollar. Well, I just lost my return. So I'm glad that you pointed that out because I think that's really important for all investors to remember. So thank you so much for joining us today, Eddie. Before we close out the episode, where can the audience connect with you and learn more about your work? Yeah, absolutely. So the best place to find me is LinkedIn. If you just search Eddie Donmez, I'm also on TikTok as well um, for those millennial or Gen Z audience. But other than that, you can look at Finimize, um on social medias and there's a killer app as well where you can get basically access to institutional grade research at super, super low, low price. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. 
please go ahead and follow us on your favorite podcast app so you can get these episodes delivered automatically. If you've been enjoying the podcast, we would really appreciate it if you left us a rating or review on the podcast app you're on. This will really help us in the search algorithm so others can discover the show as well. And if you haven't already done so, be sure to check out our website, theinvestorspodcast.com. There you'll find all of our episodes, some educational resources, as well as our TIP finance tool that Robert and I use to manage our own stock portfolios. And with that, we'll see you again next time. Thank you for listening to TIP. Make sure to subscribe to We Study Billionaires by the Investors Podcast Network. Every Wednesday, we teach you about Bitcoin, and every Saturday, we study billionaires and the financial markets. To access our show notes, transcripts, or courses, go to theinvestorspodcast.com. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decision, consult a professional. This show is copyrighted by the Investors Podcast Network. Written permission must be granted before syndication or rebroadcasting.